I've recently commenced a series of sermons through the Gospels, not through any one particular Gospel, but through the Gospels as they record the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the works of Jesus. And uh, currently we are in Luke chapter 1, where we have just seen that Mary has been notified that she is going to be the mother of Jesus. And then Mary goes to the hill country of Judea, where she enters the home of Zechariah. And uh, so that's where we are today. In just a few minutes, then, I will direct your attention to the song that Mary sang. But I want to, by way of introduction, have you look in the book of Psalms with me. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 57. There's something that I want to show you here in the, uh, the subtitles or the superscriptions that appear before various psalms. The first psalm that I want you to uh, look at is Psalm 54. So open your Bibles to Psalm 54. It may be that you, like most people, never pay any attention to the subtitles that uh, are with the psalms, but they can be instructive. And uh, I think it's helpful to understand the psalm if you know the occasion on which the psalm was written. So, for example, before verse 1, you see there's uh, some information about this psalm. It says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David... A maskil is probably a musical or a liturgical term, not exactly sure. It's a maskil of David, and then here's the point. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now, we just covered this historical event in the college and career Sunday school class this morning. Ziph was the name of a city. And the, uh, David was running from Saul, and the Ziphites went and told Saul, David is in our city. Come down and we'll give him into your hands. At that time, David responds by writing Psalm 54. Psalm 55 also identified as a masculine, but look at Psalm 56, the subtitle. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths. So apparently that was the name of a melody that everybody knew in those days. The dove on far-off terebinths. The terebinth was a tree. This is a mictum. Also probably a musical or liturgical term. But then see when he wrote it. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. So you can... You can read that. You can read about that in First and Second Samuel, and then you can go to Psalm 56 and read what David's devotional reflection on this experience was. Look at Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to "Do not destroy." So there's the name of another melody. Do not destroy. A victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. You can read how that David fled from Saul took shelter in the cave of Adullam. Here's his, here is his devotional reflection on that experience. Uh, skip over Psalm 58. Psalm 59, he wrote this, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. 
Psalm 60, Psalm 60 has a rather lengthy subtitle, um, and so on. You know, so I, we could just page through and find that a number of these psalms are identified as psalms of David. Sometimes it tells us what kind of uh, musical or literary term describes the psalm. Sometimes it tells us uh, the tune that it was sung to for years. And then it often tells us, here is the occasion that led to David's writing this psalm. So if you have never been aware of the subtitles of the psalms, it's worth coming to church this morning just so that you learn that. But I'm using that only by way of introduction to a song that Mary sang out when she went to the home of Zechariah. So now turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll read Mary's song. And then there are two main ideas that I want us to explore from Mary's song. The first idea is characteristics of the blessed life. Mary says in this psalm, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And she reveals several of the reasons why she is blessed. Some reasons that please God can be evidenced in our own lives. Of course, none of our circumstances are going to be exactly like Mary's. That is an event never again to be repeated. But there are characteristics that Mary observes about the Lord and about her circumstances that I believe are characteristic of blessed lives. You want to live a blessed life? And I do too. Everybody wants to live a blessed or happy God-approved life. And, uh, and so we can get some keys for that. The second thing that I want us to see from Mary's song is, what does she teach us about God? We can learn some things about the names by which she refers to God, and some of the characteristics that she identifies about God, and then we can also see some of his ways that he deals with people that are true to this day. And so those are the two main ideas that we want to see here from this song that Mary sings out. So remember that uh, last time we found Mary entering the home of Zechariah in the hill country of Judah. And she enters Zechariah's home and she greets Elizabeth. And immediately Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and says in a loud voice, Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said will be accomplished. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Why am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then this is what we have as the first thing that Mary says. Let's read it. Mary said, My soul magna... This is verse 46. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. I would say that Mary stayed with Elizabeth until Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist, and then Mary returned home. Now, what are some of the keys to being blessed? What are some of the keys to living a blessed life that we can glean from this song of Mary? And the first thing that I want to point out to you is that Mary apparently used this song as an opportunity to memorialize an event of great grace in her life. She used this event of great grace that God had appeared to her and said she is going to give birth to the Messiah. And she did what she could to turn it into a a memorable experience that she could refer to again and again throughout her life and that in fact would even be a blessing to us. And what she did is what David did, as I pointed out to you in the introduction. She reflected upon her experience and turned it into an expression of praise to the Lord. In David's case and in Mary's case, it was a at least a memorized oral expression, maybe a written expression. In Mary's case, I doubt if it was written down right away because I doubt if Mary could read and write. In those days, I don't think it was common for girls to be able to read and write. And Mary, just a young girl, probably 14 or 15, she probably never wrote this down. What she probably did was make up a song as she is on her way from Nazareth to the hill country of Judea. I'm not sure how far that was. I think it could be as far as 100 miles. I don't imagine that in those days a young girl of 14 or 15 was was traveling by herself. There was probably some kind of an escort that she was with or maybe a group of pilgrims who were going that way. Again, we're in the dark as to knowing what Mary's uh, situation was at home. A girl 14 or 15 years old who was not yet married would certainly still be in the house of her father. But was the house of her father a place that was sympathetic to Mary in her present condition? I just wonder how it would fly if she goes home and says to her mom and dad, I'm going to have a baby. And then everything that mom and dad hear after that sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. You know, once I'm going to have a baby comes out of the girl's mouth, you don't hear what comes after that. But maybe after they settle down, then she said, but I, I have been pure. I, God has appeared to me. An angel has come and told me that I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. And I just wonder if her mom and dad, were, what their reaction was. I don't know. But my suspicion is that it was not entirely sympathetic. And that is why this young girl goes to the house of someone that she knows will understand. 
She goes to the house of Elizabeth. I'd like to think that Mary, being a dutiful child, took this journey with the, with the permission and even the blessing of her, 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 her authorities, her guardians, her parents. But all of that is just speculation. But I suspect that on this journey, no matter who she was with and how she was going, as poor as she was, maybe walking, that she had plenty of time to think things over. And as she thought things over, this song of praise developed in her mind. I I doubt if she just spontaneously, on the spur of the moment, uttered out this profound song that we have here. It's possible the Holy Spirit can enable people to do that. But I think that David and Hannah and Mary and you and I often have opportunity to reflect upon the events of God's grace in our lives and we have the opportunity to memorialize them in some way so that at least we are able to remember them. You do not have to be a skilled poet or a skilled writer to write down how God has blessed you in a way that you will be able to remember it better and reflect upon it in days to come. You do not have to be a skilled musician to make a little song that will help you to remember something that God has done for you or something in the scriptures that you, that you want to remember that you always want it to be in your mind. I urge you to take advantage of the opportunities to memorialize what God has done for you. Keep a journal. It doesn't have to be every day. You might have a little book of blessings from the Lord. You might write on the, write on the cover, events of grace, things that God has done that I know are God's hand because you know we all have cloudy days when we don't see the sunshine of God's favor. And we wonder, is God still good? And then what a blessing it is for you to be able to turn to your, your little journal of the good things that God has done for you and to be reminded of the ways that God has been with you through the years. You young people should start keeping a journal like this. I, I have several books that, uh, that I keep, and I, I call it my thoughtful book. I have several thoughtful books that have, I have been, I've been keeping for more than 20 years. And when I feel like the Lord has revealed something to me that I want to remember, then I often will write it down in my thoughtful book. I don't do it as often as I should. And this sermon this morning is a reminder to me that I need to be doing that more faithfully. But it may be something that is beginning for you to memorialize the great events of God in your life by writing them down. Write a poem if you want to. Write a little essay or just write a journal entry that will help you to remember the good things that God has done for you. But what Mary did was write a song, a very profound song that has come down to us. I believe that one of the ways of leading a blessed life is to always be reminding yourself of how good God is and take advantage of opportunities to remind yourself of that. I think a second thing that we can see from uh, this song of Mary's, which, by the way, is called the Magnificat. The Magnificat. The reason is because in Latin, magnificant, magnificat 
is the first word in the Latin version of this song. And uh, so the first thing that Mary says is, my soul magnifies the Lord. And so that word I magnify in, in Latin is something like magnificent. So my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now I think a, a second key to leading a blessed life is to have a biblical psychology about yourself. Now what I mean by psychology is there are, there are certain ways that we think about who we are and think about ourselves. And a biblical way, and I'm not going to turn this into a sermon right now, it's worth thinking about. The way that you think about yourself and the way that I think about myself is probably constructed in different ways than it was 100 years ago. We really have a tendency to think of ourselves as individuals more than our ancestors did. And, and that is encouraged in our culture. And uh, I think that it explains a lot of bad things that are going on. But I don't want to turn this into a sermon on Christian psychology. I just want to point out this one thing about a healthy Christian psychology. And that is that you recognize that you have a soul. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I don't know that in, in her mind she is necessarily talking about two different things. And when I, when I think of soul and spirit, I don't think of two different things. There may be some fine distinctions there that are helpful for you, but I just think of the soul and the spirit as that non-material part of me that is the real me, the part of me that is going to survive when this body is over. And it's, it's very biblical for us to think about ourselves as having a soul. Because... Having a soul, that thought leads to the question, am I taking care of my soul? In one of the scripture readings that I read at the beginning of the service, it was Psalm 103. And the psalmist addresses his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Who are you talking to? Well, I'm talking to myself. But I'm talking to myself in the way that I am a, I am a reasonable person who has listened to what God has said. And I, the reasonable person, am saying to that part of me that has a tendency to fluctuate emotionally, that part of me that has a tendency to fail to glorify the Lord and be thankful. I'm talking to myself like an authority talking to an inferior and I'm saying, soul, bless the Lord and all that is within me, bless the Lord. I want to remind you of some things, soul. Don't forget all his benefits. He heals all your diseases. He, <coughs> he delivers your life from destruction. He renews your life. He renews your life like the eagles and satisfies your mouth with good things. You've got lots of reasons, soul, to give thanks to the Lord. And uh, one of the songs that we sang just a minute ago, I can't remember which one, but uh, it is uh, 
Oh, my soul. The songwriter addressed, oh, my soul, do this. It's a very biblical way of thinking, but I don't think that it's necessarily a way that we often take control of our thought life. But it's a biblical way of doing it. The psalmist sometimes says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why so disquieted within me? It's a little bit, that, that kind of Christian psychology is a little bit like what happens to you when you wake up at night after you've had a bad dream. I had a bad dream a few nights ago. I dreamed that I got my face tattooed. And I thought, why did you do that? You have always thought that tattoos are stupid. Why would you get a tattoo on your face? I was really distressed. And oh, how relieved I was when I woke up and said, you don't have a tattoo on your face. It was just a bad dream. Who am I talking to? Who am I saying, you don't have a tattoo on your face? That's me, my rational self, talking to my sometimes irrational self. And I think that with most of us, there is constantly a conversation going on in our heads. Should I say this? Do I need to say this? No, I don't need to say that. Okay, go ahead. And then, so there's always this conversation going on. Should I say this? What do I think about that? Well, here's what I think. Do you need to say it? No, don't say it. There's just always this conversation going on in your head. I think that a way of describing Christian conversion is when the dominant voice inside your head becomes the spirit-filled you. That the... The faith that you have in the Lord, believing what the Lord has said, becomes the part of you that now says to the rest of you, here's the way that it's going to be from here on out. And so I'm going to talk to myself every once in a while and say, I know you don't feel like doing this thing, but it's what needs to be done. You said that you would do it, and so keep your word and do it. That's that's a very Christian way of talking to yourself and a very Christian way of thinking about yourself. And apparently Mary knows how to do that because she refers to herself and says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This has taken hold of me so that everything within me, body, soul, and spirit, is rejoicing in God. Before I leave this point, I want to remind you of something that the Lord Jesus asked. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, that's that Christian psychology. Jesus is saying, you've got a soul. It's going to live forever. It's going to go to heaven or it's going to go to hell when you die. Are you taking care of your soul? Now, that's a question that everyone in here needs to ask and answer. Are you taking care of your soul. Because what does it matter if all this other stuff that you're trying to get, let's say that you get it all, but then you lose your most precious possession. You lose your very self. Then what does it matter that you got all of these things? So a way of having a true blessedness is to benefit from this Christian psychology that Mary demonstrates when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord 
and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now here's another, here's another step in, in what I believe is how to live the blessed life. Mary sees herself in a bigger context than just her immediate circumstances. She looks back and she thinks, the experience that I'm having reminds me of something that I've read about in the Bible. Have you ever been around people who are reminded at everything, they're reminded of some movie that they've seen? It's just like everything that happens, they say, oh, this is like in that movie. This is like in that movie. You know why they think that? Because their mind is saturated with movies. The same thing can happen with with songs. Oh, this reminds me of such and such in a song. The reason that happens is because your mind is saturated with songs. When, When Mary was reflecting upon her experience, she remembered, oh, this is so much like what Hannah experienced and that song that she sang, that she wrote and sang. And I'm not going to do it right now. It would be remarkable, I think, for you to recognize, to put Hannah's song next to Mary's song and see how similar they are. Some very, very similar themes that are going on. But Mary saw herself as being part of a continuum that reached back hundreds and hundreds of years and included a godly woman like Hannah. And I think that that's one of the keys to having a blessed life. It's to know that you are part of something that has been going on for thousands of years if you are a Christian. And you have older brothers and sisters in the faith that are, their stories are told in the Bible and their songs are recorded in the Bible. And these songs can be an encouragement to you and help you even to shape your own thoughts about how you feel about things and how you ought to think about things. And so Mary had the advantage of when she was in this situation, it reminded her of something that had happened long ago. And I think that's one of the keys, to see yourself in a context that reaches back for hundreds and thousands of years. But then also Mary was able to look forward and see that she was part of God's plan for his people. And so she saw herself surrounded surrounded in the past and surrounded from the future as being part of what God was unfolding. And there is a lot of peace in that, a lot of room for happiness to know that what God sends into your life is part of a great master plan that he is unfolding. And it's not your responsibility to choose what part you're going to play in this drama It's your responsibility to play well the part that God has assigned to you in this drama. And there is so much relief in simply saying what Mary said, I'm the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. I've quoted this little poem to you at least once before, maybe more, but it's worth hearing again. It bolsters this point that there is great peace in knowing that you are part of God's plan and that God is in control and you are going to submit to Him and the circumstances that He has put upon you. The poet writes, With eager heart and will on fire, I fought to win my great desire. Peace shall be mine, 
I said, but life grew bitter in the weary strife. My soul was hurt. My pride was wounded deep. To heaven I cried, God, grant me peace or I must die. The dumb stars glittered. No reply. Broken at last, I bowed my head, forgetting all myself and said, whatever comes, thy will be done. And in that moment, peace was won. In that moment, whatever comes, thy will be done. Your life is part of God's big plan. He knows who you are, and we'll get to that in just a second. But your life is part of a great big plan. And there is peace in knowing I am where God wants me to be. I'm surrounded with the people and the circumstances that God has put around me. And I am going to do my best to serve God in these circumstances. So Mary saw herself as part of God's big plan, reached, down, reached out in the past, goes forward into the future. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And we do. We, we look at her as being such a, a privileged and blessed woman. But not only did Mary see herself as being part of God's big plan, but she saw also, she saw also that she was the object of God's particular favor. And you and I can see both of those things. It's not all about us. But sometimes it is about us. And Mary says that in this. You know, she says, all, all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. And it's good <clears throat> if we're able to see in, the, in all of the ups and downs of our lives that we're able to say, but the Lord has been good to me. Everything may not be just exactly the way that I would order it if I were doing the ordering, but God is wise and God is loving. And through it all, God has been good to me. And so those are a few things that we can learn from Mary about living the blessed life. Learn how to memorialize God's grace events in your life. Uh, Cultivate a Christian psychology where you realize that you are not at the whim of every emotional fit that you have. You're able to say, soul, settle down. Soul, praise the Lord. And then another key to living the blessed life that we have here is that Mary sees herself as part of a big context where God's plan is being accomplished and she's part of that. And then fourthly, that God has specifically blessed her and called her to do something. But now let's turn our attention to this second thing that we want to see from this passage of Scripture, and that is, what does this song teach us about God? Let's notice, first of all, some of the names by which Mary refers to God. So right there in the very first line, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. So that's the first one. We'll come back to it. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's the second one. And then in verse 49, she describes him as 
he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now, these are three very important ways that we need to be thinking about the Lord. You may wonder why I never included holy as one of his names. That's in verse 49b, holy is his name. I'll come back to that. But let's just limit ourselves now to these three names. First of all, God is the Lord. Now, this is a word that we rarely use in our culture. We don't have lords and ladies in the United States of America. Uh, well, we, hopefully we have ladies, but there are not people that we call lords that are the counterpart to, to ladies, lords and ladies. But you know that the word Lord means, well, I guess the closest we can come to it in English and not be offensive is the boss. But really, master is better. Master is better. But we've got all of these ideas that, well, master means slave, and that's a degrading relationship. Well, that, I'm sorry to inform you, is biblical language. The Lord really is the master, and our relationship to him, relationship to him is often described as slave. Not boss employee. It's more stark than that. He owns us. He tells us what to do. He punishes us when we don't do what he says. That is, that is a relationship that you must have with God. God doesn't need you to join his counsel. God doesn't need you to somehow bolster his strength in some part of the world. God doesn't need you at all. God, by the blood of his son, has purchased you out of a slave market. You were in the household of Satan. You were following Satan's will. You were cooperating with Satan's rebellion. And God said, that's enough of that. I'm going to buy this slave. And he bought us with the blood of his son. But he didn't just buy us and say, okay, there you go, free, do whatever you want. No, when he buys us out of the slave market of sin, we become slaves in his house. That is biblical language. The, the ESV tries to cushion it by always translating, nearly always translating slave as bond servant. But they'll, they're honest enough to put a footnote by it and say, that is slave. And so when Paul identifies himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ, just follow the little footnote down, it says, that is slave. Now it is not degrading to be a slave to such a gracious master. The fact of the matter is, you're going you're to be somebody's slave. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You are going to, one person recognizes what I'm, what I'm quoting. Uh, you'll have to ask me later on to do an imitation of that singer. It would be a terrible distraction right now. But you are going to have, you're, you're going to be somebody's slave. 
and you might as well just get it straight today. I will, I will ask Jesus to be my master. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, Jesus is not going to be your Savior unless he's also your Lord. But when you make him your Lord, he is also going to be your Savior. He is going to take care of everything for you. That's one of the great things about being a slave in the household of Jesus. He's somebody who knows what you need, someone who is able to take care of you and do it better for you than you could do it for yourself. And so when you take Jesus as your Lord, then you can also say with Mary that God is my Savior. And then you will begin to understand, like never before, how that he is also the mighty one. And that's the third name that Mary gives to the Lord. The mighty one has done great things for me. And when you take Jesus as your Savior, and when you take Jesus as your Lord, then you see that there are tremendous changes that begin to take place in your life. The main goal of your salvation is not to make you happy. The main goal of your salvation is to make you holy, but holiness leads to happiness. Holiness leads to blessedness. The mighty one is exercising his arm to accomplish his purposes. And so we learn something about God from these names that Mary gives to the Lord in this, her song. But then we can also learn something about the Lord's character. Perhaps you wondered why I didn't say that holy is his name in verse 49 and that that was one of his names. Uh, It's because I think that what Mary is saying here is that God's character is entirely, invariably, delightfully holy. I'm not sure what your definition of holiness is. Mine continues to expand as the years go by. I started off maybe just looking up in a Bible dictionary, what does holy mean? And it says, set apart. Set apart from sin. Maybe that's my earliest thoughts. Holiness is being set apart from sin. But then when you're set apart from something, you're also set apart to something. So what is God set apart to? Well, God never did have to be set apart from sin. And there are scriptures in the Bible that say things like, you alone are holy. What what does that mean? And so to skip over all the cogitations that I've had down through the years, I'm just going to bring you up to date in January of 2023 what I think holy means. And I'm going to lead you into it by giving you an analogy. So I don't know what you think about Tom Brady. I myself am not uh, much of a football watcher. I I don't know that I've watched an entire game this whole year. Uh, But I have heard that Tom Brady is called the GOAT, the greatest of all time. G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. Now what makes him the greatest of all time? Okay, I'm just going to speculate here because I'm I'm not a big expert on these things. But I'm going to say that Tom Brady is in really good physical shape. I'm going to say that Tom Brady can throw the ball extremely well. 
I'm going to say that Tom Brady has an uncanny ability to see everybody who's on that field and know where they're going to go next. He's able to make lightning fast decisions and throw the ball when it needs to be thrown. He is able to keep cool under pressure. And so I've probably mentioned eight or nine characteristics that go into saying, if he does all of these things and he does all of them well, then he is the greatest of all time. But when you say that he's the goat, that means that he's, he's able to pass, he's able to keep cool under pressure and so on. I think that holy is a word like G-O-A-T. That it means everything that goes into being the, the greatest, most admirable, most praiseworthy being that you could possibly conceive and beyond what you're able to conceive is God. God is that person. That's why it says that he alone is holy. There are other people who have degrees of holiness, but compared to God, they just look like dirt compared to him. He is the absolute fullness of every perfection that you could possibly imagine and perfections that you have not possibly imagined. They are all exquisitely, beautifully displayed in God. And I think that this explains why when, Paul, when, <clears throat> when John has a vision of heaven, he sees four living creatures who are full of eyes in front and behind. These are people who can see. These are persons who know what's what. And these four living creatures are around the throne and with all of their eyes, they're gazing at God. And here's what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. <coughs> and the Bible says day and night, they never stop saying that. That's just impossible for us to imagine how that could be. Everything that we see that causes us to explode with wonder eventually becomes less wonderful. Sooner or later, we get used to it. But with God, it's like every time he turns around, the, the, the four living creatures say, oh, I've never seen that before. Oh, hope. What, what are you going to call that? Holy. And then, oh, look at that. I, I don't have. That's holy. Yeah, I think it's just <clears throat> this is the greatest that it can possibly be. And so that is what Mary sees here. Holy is his name. He is just so wonderful. And out of his holiness, <clears throat> he does a couple of surprising things. <clears throat> One thing is, he takes down everybody who is proud. You can see that a couple of places. <clears throat> Let's look at what he says in in verse 51, what it says about him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And then look at the end of verse 53. The rich he has sent away empty. <clears throat> it's not that God has anything against rulers or against rich people. Or that he has anything <clears throat> yeah, against, against those people who are... 
seen to be by human standards in positions of prominence. The problem is that when we are exalted to positions of prominence, it almost always consumes our brains about ourselves. And we start thinking of ourselves in terms of the way that all these adoring followers of ours are wanting to touch us or wanting to get our autograph. It is no wonder that the superstars in athletics and the superstars in entertainment become such weird people. Uh, So dependent on drugs and alcohol and they have begun to believe what all of their admiring followers are saying about them. And yet there are all these evidences that it's not true. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because people who get rich get so distracted with the fact that they're rich. People in positions of power get so obsessed with the fact that they are in positions of power. And the Lord says, I'm not going to have that in my kingdom. We're not going to have proud people coming into the kingdom. I am the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, the Lord says. And I dwell in a holy and high place, but I also will dwell with him who is humble and contrite in spirit. Contrite means that you are broken about your sin. And the Lord says, I'm going to bypass all these proud people who think that they're okay. I'm going to bypass all these rich people who say that they uh, have got plenty of food. And I'm going to look to this person who says, will you please give me a bite of the bread of life? Will you please give me a, a drink? Lord, I need a drink of water of life. And the Lord says, that's the people that I'm going to look to. And Mary says, that's his way. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up who? Lifted up the humble. He has filled the poor with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. God is a God who sees things different than the way that humans see them. The things that are highly valued among men are despised in God's eyes. Lesson you should take from this. You want to be blessed? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Do not give quarter to those thoughts that uh, make you think that you're a pretty good person and that you, you just don't need all this religious stuff. Don't give those thoughts quarter. Instead, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Another thing that Mary says here about <clears throat> the ways of the Lord is that it says that he, he, he blesses those who fear him. There in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So God is a God, a God who delights to show mercy, but he shows mercy to those who fear him. The final thing that we learn about God in this passage of Scripture is that God is a God who keeps his promises. This is the way Mary concludes her song. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. God has promised that he is going to be merciful and he is keeping that promise. And to you today I say that God has made a promise that those who enter into an agreement with him through Jesus Christ will be shown mercy. 
And that is a promise that he remembers. The bloody death of his son upon the cross was enough to redeem us from our sins. And we are made partakers of that redemption purchased by Christ when the Holy Spirit effectually applies it to us. He works faith in us. He, He grants us to have repentance unto life and leads us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. How is it with your soul? Are you taking care of your soul? The first and most important thing that you can do for the good of your soul is to entrust it into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Max, I see that you have uh, chosen a hymn that helps us to reflect upon this. So please come and lead us in, uh, in this song.